Globalization is uh, international integration on steroids. It's uh, the movement of people, ideas, goods across uh, national boundaries. It's been going on for a long time, but now it's going on rapidly in a very dense way. All you have to do is go to the grocery store in December or January and buy fresh produce. Uh, that doesn't come from Kansas. Uh, look at all the labels on the clothing that you buy. Look at all the labels on the products that you consume. And I think that um, we're very much consumers of, of the global economy and we're dependent very, very much so on, on global goods and services. Globalization, I think, really means networked. Um, interconnections that mean that something that happens around the world can affect us in Nebraska today. Uh, sometimes those connections are subtle and sometimes they're really obvious. But globalization really does mean we're becoming more and more a global community. Human trafficking is people held against their will and forced into sex or labor and even other things uh, like organ trafficking and uh, they have no choice. Eventually you die and they throw you away. Although formally slavery has abol been abolished and the slave trade has also been abolished under international law for over 150 years, the fact is that slavery persists and that contemporary forms of slavery are actually increasing in many parts of the world. It is a real issue and we need to fight it on both sides of it, the supply as well as the demand. I think the public should know that this is a grave problem that affects people from around the world, primarily women and children, but also men, that it occurs right here in America and right here in Nebraska. Good evening. I am Professor Lloyd Ambrosius. Uh, it is my pleasure as uh, chair of the program committee to welcome you to the uh, Ian Thompson uh, Forum on World Issues. Founded by Ian Jack Thompson and later named uh, in his honor, uh, the forum is designed to engage both the University of Nebraska community and the general public in important issues that affect all of us in the contemporary world. Our theme for 2010-2011 is Globalization's Promise. Our speakers this year will address various aspects of globalization, both pro and con. Tonight's lecture by E. Benjamin Skinner is co-sponsored by the second annual Human Trafficking Conference at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He is currently a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute at Brandeis University. Uh, he was a fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard's uh, Kennedy School of Government. In his book, 
a crime so monstrous face to face with modern day slavery. He tells of individuals who live in slavery, who have escaped from bondage, who own or traffic in slaves, and who seek to combat these crimes. Tonight, he will tell this story. After the lecture, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of our speaker by writing them on cards provided by the ushers. Now join me in welcoming Ben Skinner to Nebraska. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, great, great crowd here. This is absolutely terrific. Um, can, I, uh, can I try something? Uh, can we do a Go Big Red on, on three? Okay, ready? One, two, three. Excellent, thank you. That makes me feel very much at home. I was born in Wisconsin, so I really appreciate you guys cheering on the Badgers. Um, no, thank you, thank you. This is, it's absolutely terrific. I feel very, uh, very at home here in Nebraska. And um, that, uh, that warm introduction by uh, Professor Ambrosius, thank you for that. Um, thank you to everybody here at the LEAD Center who's done such a terrific job of setting up this, uh, this event. I understand that, the, uh, that the, uh, the population out there today is the same as it was for, for Bono and for my old student Ashley Judd. I, I don't know how that happened, but um, I, I'm, I'm not actually going to be giving away cars uh, at random. So if, if that's what you'd heard, then um, you're in the wrong place. Um, I, I, I do want to thank just a couple of other people as well. Um, uh, first of all, everybody uh, on the committee of the E.N. Thompson uh, Forum that decided to, uh, to take a chance and have me here. I'm, I'm deeply honored. Uh, and you should all really come and hear the other speakers as well who have a great deal more experience in the world and who, um, who are, are a truly impressive lineup, including uh, Chuck Hagel, uh, Christy Todd Whitman, Laurie Garrett, etc. The, the, um, the program goes on this uh, um, over the next few months. Um, I, I want to thank everybody also connected with the, uh, with the second annual human rights, or sorry, human trafficking conference. Um, I'm, I'm deeply honored to be following in Kevin Bale's footsteps, who, who gave the keynote, uh, the opening keynote last year, and who is, um, uh, to my eye, sort of the godfather of the modern-day slavery movement. Um, uh, I particularly want to thank uh, Sriani Tidball um, uh, and Katie Cervantes with the uh, with the Thompson Forum, who's been showing me around today and been terrific help. Uh, Ann Chang. Um, uh, and and all of the University of Nebraska students and faculty that have that have done uh, such a terrific job of putting this uh, this event together and and much more importantly making me feel welcome. Um, so um, oh and I would be remiss if I didn't thank um, somebody who I don't think I've met yet, but uh, Nick Goodwin is responsible for for this poster up here. I don't know if he's in the audience here. Um, but um, uh, my mother particularly appreciated this because I was in uh, uh, Afghanistan when, when the, the poster came out. My mother was sort of um, uh, Googling 
to, to see if there were dispatches that, that I was filing for foreign policy to see when they came up. And, and so, you know, we had the Google News alerts and this kind of thing. And, and one of the things that popped up was this, uh, this poster. And uh, online it looks very small and all that you can see is not dead. And so my mother was extremely, um, extremely grateful to, to know that her son, despite being out of radio contact in Afghanistan, was in fact not dead. Um, so thank you, uh, Nick, for, for giving my mother that, that assurance, albeit uh, unintended. Um, so um, my sense is th that there is a real, uh, because there are going to be a lot of people here who are attending the conference, um, there's a real uh, 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 commitment that runs throughout this crowd and a real, uh, also a real knowledge um, base. Uh, I'm, I'm going to very briefly um, uh, go over my understanding of what um, the, the state of the problem is in the world today, talk about some specific um, uh, experiences that I've had uh, both during the production of the book and, and since uh, the book where I, I've, I've continued to report on modern-day slavery in various contexts. Um, and um, I want to leave plenty of time for questions and answers because I, um, frankly, I'm selfish and I get a lot more out of uh, uh, discussion than I do out of uh, hearing the sound of my own voice. Um, uh, but I will, um, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm going to, unfortunately, the, 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 the limits on time mean that I'm going to be um, talking largely about the problem, um, talking briefly about some of the solutions uh, tomorrow morning at the opening uh, lecture, for those of you who, um, who will be able to attend the conference, I'll be going into greater details on that. But also, hopefully, in the question and answer period, we can talk about uh, more uh, avenues of, of action, as it were, um, and, uh, and ways to, that all of you can and I hope do get involved. Um, so to start out with, I just want to be uh, crystal clear on what it is that I wrote about, what it is that, uh, that I'm talking about here today. Because the term slavery has become in modern usage when it refers to a modern circumstance, i.e. when you're not talking about slavery in the antebellum South, the term slavery has become uh, essentially a, a metaphor for undue hardship. If, if, you, um, if you go home and you look up on merriamwebster.com or you look up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary the definition of slavery, the first definition is today drudgery or toil. Uh, it is, as I say, something that is applied uh, very loosely to a whole range of, of experiences that, that we don't particularly uh, uh, enjoy. And I'll give you an example. Uh, last, uh, last Saturday, um, there was a, uh, 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 an all-pro tackle for the Washington Redskins by the name of Albert Hainsworth. And um, uh, this particular individual makes, uh, uh, he's, he's under a $100 million contract. He makes millions of dollars playing a sport. And uh, he resisted actively 
um, uh, a great deal of, of the, uh, the strategy that was being put forth by his coaches. Um, uh, principally, he objected, and this is, I, I presume in Nebraska I can speak in football terms and get away with it, but he was, um, he was objecting from, uh, the, that the coach wanted to, to uh, switch from a 4-3 defense to a 3-4 defense. He said, you know, that's not what I signed up for. Um, and he said, and he used the term, slave. He said, they're treating me like a slave. Um, this is, this to me um, uh, sticks in my, in my throat. Because as a reality of life and uh, as, a, as a, a real definition of what slavery is, we're not talking about a metaphor here. And what I'm talking about, and the people that I'll be talking about today, and the people that I wrote about in my book, and the people that I've subsequently uh, been focused on uh, before and after writing the book, essentially for the last eight years, these are people who are, are not in some abstract hardship. These are people who are forced to work, held through fraud, under threat of violence, for no pay beyond subsistence. These are people that cannot walk away from their jobs. And by that mere definition, there are more slaves in the world today than at any point in human history. And so where are these slaves? Because in the antebellum South and, and my, my ancestors um, who uh, were Quakers, in the, uh, in the American Northeast, um, when they were railing against the traffic in men body, when they stood up on their soapboxes in Connecticut, um, you could see slavery out in the open, in, in open air auctions, in, on the cotton plantations of the American South. Uh, today, slavery is everywhere and it's nowhere. And what I attempted to do um, before I began traveling was to get my arms around where the, the best estimates of, of where slaves are today. And, and, if, and I tried actually, I brought out a map and, and, um, and if, and if uh, I didn't actually put pins in, but, I, but, I, but I, had a, I wanted to have a sense of where the concentrations were. And if you were to plot slaves on a map, the vast majority of pins you'd have to put in South Asia in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Nepal and Sri Lanka. Um, in those countries, there was a form of slavery that the United Nations in its deathless prose, uh, uh, the United Nations has an uncanny ability to, to take um, uh, terrible crimes against humanity and sanitize them through language. Um, and in this case, the, the sanitization is referring to the form of slavery that is, that, that is most common in South Asia as hereditary collateralized debt bondage. These are individuals who have no other access to credit, no other access to capital, and therefore their only credit, their only capital uh, is, is accessed by leveraging their only asset, which is themselves or their children. And 
according to the International Labor Office, there are some 10 million. According to Free the Slaves, which is the, to my eye, the most vigorous and most effective anti-slavery organization in the United States uh, that, that's, that's focused on slavery worldwide, there are 20 million in this form of debt bondage in South Asia. Uh, and to give you a more concrete sense of what it's like, because that term, generational, hereditary, collateralized debt bondage, that in no way uh, reveals the horror of what it is to be born into slavery, to be forced to work as, as one man that I spoke with in northern India was forced to work in a quarry. This man was in his early 40s. He looked as if he could have been in his 70s. Um, his wife had full-blown tuberculosis, um, as did almost every, every, almost every family in this village uh, had at least one member that had uh, full-blown tuberculosis, and most had silicosis. Um, from inhaling the, the dust and the sand from, from this quarry. What this man um, uh, was forced to do every day with his family was to take rocks, huge slabs of rock, out of the earth, and it was the children that would plant the blasting explosives because they could crawl into the, into the smaller spaces to... To, to plant the explosives, light a short fuse, and then run. And of course, uh, the injuries were frequent and, and horrifying. Um, to take these slabs out of the earth and, and to break those rocks up um, into gravel. Gravel, which was then used as the subgrade of, uh, of uh, many of India's road projects, part of their um, they're what they call the, the golden quadrilateral, for example, which is sort of their equivalent of Eisenhower's interstate, um, interstate highway system. Um, and, and then they would further pulverize that gravel into sand, into silica sand, which is a fine sand in, um, that's used in the manufacture of glass. Um, and there's only one way in the modern world that you turn a profit off of handmade sand, and that's through slavery. And this particular individual was forced to work because his grandfather had taken a debt of the grandfather of the, the current slave master, a man named Ramesh Garg. Um, the, the initial debt was for a ceremonial expense, actually for a bride price. And the initial debt was 62 cents. And three generations and three slave masters later, this fellow and his entire family were forced to work to pay off that initial debt. Now, the, the interest on that debt had never been touched. It was, they were, uh, sorry, the principal on that debt had never, had never been touched. In theory, they were servicing an exorbitant interest rate. In practice, they were illiterate, innumerate. They didn't keep the books. And if they complained, as this fellow Ganu did on, on more than one occasion, although not many more than one occasion, uh, they were beaten or they were killed summarily. And in the case of Ganu, in one case, he was beaten so badly that his eyes swelled shut and he couldn't walk for a week. The, 
when I approached Ganu and asked him about um, uh, his life, I would go in, I would slip in at night and talk to him in, in, his, in his hut about, about the uh, experience that he, was, that he was living. And I said, you know, why don't you run away? And he said, well, for one thing, uh, no matter where I go in India, uh, Ramesh and his men would find me. He believed, and with some, um, with some uh, accuracy, he believed that the sand mafias, as the police called the uh, the quarry owners, the quarry contractors, uh, had a very broad-reaching network, and he he greatly feared the violence, and with good reason, of Ramesh Garg. Local police had records that Ramesh had killed. Uh, five high caste, Brahmin caste Indians. Um, these are people whose deaths, whose murders registered on local police ledgers. Uh, in, the, in the estimate of the slaves, he had killed over a dozen, over 12 slaves in the, in the, pr in the prior 20 years to the, to the point where I was getting there. But their, their deaths never never made it onto the uh, police ledgers. They were, they were the Dalit. They were, they were throwaways. Um, and I asked him, why don't you run away? First, fear. Second, he said, how would I, how would I eat? Uh, where, where, would I, where would I go? How would I feed my family? And as I was traveling in India, I'd been reading the, 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 the writings and the speeches of Mahatma Gandhi, and Gandhi had a very eloquent um, thing to say about slavery, and he talked about it in the context of the Quit India campaign. But what he said was, the moment a slave decides not to be a slave, the bond is snapped and the fetters fall. Slavery and freedom are mental constructs. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that makes sense to me, having been born free, uh, having been born in a society where it's axiomatic that we all have, have inborn native rights to, to freedom, to liberty, to the pursuit of happiness. But in talking to Ganu, I, I realized that slavery for him was no mere mental construct. Slavery for him was his world. And in that world, Ramesh Garg was God. And he was not only the taker of life, but he was also the giver of sustenance. So when we think about the persistence of slavery in the modern world, and we, when we think about ways to finally eradicate it, which is something that I believe we can do in a generation, we have to fundamentally think about addressing those cycles and those patterns of dependence and, and breaking free, allowing slaves to, to break free and to, to become survivors, to become independent and to realize their own freedom and to, to grow freedom within their communities by breaking the, those cycles of dependence. Now, um, Slavery in South Asia, of course, and debt bondage is not the only form of slavery in the modern world. And, and many of you will, if you've heard about modern day slavery, according to a survey that was done by the uh, California-based group Humanity United, if you've heard about modern day slavery, generally you think of it as 
human trafficking. You think about uh, it uh, in particular as one form of human trafficking, which is sex trafficking, which is the, the use of children in, the, in commercial sex or the coercion of adults into, uh, into forced prostitution. Um, the, uh, uh, according to the US State Department, there are some 600,000 um, to 800,000 that are trafficked across international borders uh, each and every year. These are estimates. Um, these are not people that register at the borders um, and say, uh, okay, I'm, I'm coming here, and you check the box slave um, on the immigration form. These are, these are what we can determine from um, uh, media reports, from the, the few instances where international and, and national law enforcement do their job and actually find slaves and, and bring them to, um, to some freedom and, and bring their captors to, to justice, which is a much rarer proposition. Um, within this country, um, the best estimates, again, this is a Justice Department estimate, are that there are between 14,000 and 17,000 that are trafficked uh, each and every year into slavery. Put another way, if I'm here talking for a little over half an hour, um, uh, within the first half hour, on average, one more person will become a slave right here in the United States. And it happens in this community as well. It happens in right here in Nebraska. And I was just speaking at a student forum across the street with, uh, with uh, Marcy Metzger, who's a, uh, a domestic violence specialist and who has, in, uh, over the course of her work here in, in Nebraska, seen instances of modern-day slavery and seen them in increasing numbers. Um, she talked about trafficking along the, uh, the I-80 corridor, which is, which is what has been noted as, as a route for, for victims. And in a, in a typical case, this was something that happened two years ago, um, or rather it was adjudicated two years ago. Uh, there were two girls who were taken out of a juvenile home, lured out of a juvenile home in Omaha. Um, and in short form, they were forced to uh, work in local hotels as prostitutes. They were forced to strip. And um, in, uh, in their cases, um, they were, one of them who was 15 years old was sold to a, a trafficker in Washington. When she got to Washington, very fortunately, she was liberated. Um, her uh, her uh, traffickers now are serving time. Um, they were convicted. That is the rare success story. And um, that is something that we have to view as unusual, principally because we know about it, principally because we heard about their plight. The vast majority of slaves, very sadly, in this country and internationally, are never liberated. They're, they are never given justice. They never receive justice. Um, so what I wanted to do when I set out to write the book was to get beyond the numbers to get beyond the definitions, to use those as a base of knowledge and as a, as a launching point 
to, to really try to understand what slavery is and what it, what it means. Um, but fundamentally not to get mired in trying to count. I knew that working on my own, I could not go out and count every slave in the world. The high-end estimates are 27 million slaves in the world. The, the low-end estimate put out by the International Labor Organization is 12.3 million. Um, one way or another, there are more slaves in the world today than at any point in human history. But, you know, unfortunately, you always have to qualify um, anytime you're going to quote Joseph Stalin. Um, uh, but many times it's the worst people that have uh, the most interesting quotes. Um, and uh, Stalin was supposed to have said, and he was a guy that knew something about mass killing. Um, uh, uh, Stalin was supposed to have said that the death of a million men is a statistic. Uh, the death of, of one man is a tragedy. And so what I wanted to do, what I set out to do at the, at the, um, at the beginning of my writing on this for Newsweek and subsequently my, uh, my book, was to find one slave, one man, one woman, one child who had been forced to perform a service, who could not walk away, who was held under threat of violence for no pay beyond subsistence. And I wanted to find survivors as well who could tell their stories and shine hopefully one ray of hope into what is otherwise a very dark story and a very bleak picture worldwide. And I wanted to find abolitionists. I wanted to find those courageous few who, to this day, as we speak, are risking their lives around the world to find, to rescue, and to rehabilitate slaves. And I wanted to, find, I wanted to go a step further, because other journalists at that point had done that. But what had not been done comprehensively was to talk to traffickers and to talk to those who buy and sell human beings and get some sense of their stories. And what I found, um, and I assumed initially it was going to be very hard to get any, any of that. Um, and there were challenges, to be sure, but at a certain point, I would go through the looking glass after having looked, through the, looked for these slaves for for several weeks in some cases in countries, and the slaves would be everywhere. And, and I could, uh, uh, after winning confidence of, of um, certain individuals who had been introduced to me by other individuals, you make some strange friends when you're getting involved with um, things like human trafficking. Um, drug dealers turn out to be some of your best friends in these moments. Uh, I found that I could get a wide array of, of stories. Um, I'm conscious of the time, and so I want to um, very quickly um, tell you a little bit about one of, uh, one of the stories that stays with me to this day. Um, it's somebody who I uh, encountered in South Africa last year on assignment for Time Magazine. Um, I was, the assignment was to, to look um, and see whether slavery existed around the, the, the stadiums that were then being prepared for last summer's World Cup. Um, and what I found was that 
children were being sold uh, for sex on the street by a number of syndicates, by a number of traffickers, um, and that the local authorities uh, at best did nothing. In many instances, they were complicit. And the, um, the end game for these victims was very stark and it was a reminder to me and I hope it's a reminder to all of you that for slaves delay is denial and we cannot wait for the eventual outcome, the inevitable outcome uh, of, of these situations, particularly in a place like South Africa. The, the outcome for one young woman, a girl, um, was pretty grim. And I'm, I'm going to show you pictures here in a second. Um, but the, um, this is a young woman who had been lured out of her uh, township in Eastern Cape uh, at age 14. She had been promised a job. She was an orphan. She'd been promised a job around Bloemfontein, South, in Bloemfontein, South Africa. Um, and a recruiter had taken her and her best friend to Bloemfontein, which was some eight, eight to ten hours by car uh, to the north. And um, when she got there, the first night she was there, the recruiter handed her over to a Nigerian named Jude. And Jude paid this recruiter with a bag of crack and uh, $35 each for each of the girls. And after that moment, the girls were forced to work in prostitution on the streets around Free State Stadium, which was then hosting rug rugby games and which uh, as of last uh, as of last summer was hosting World Cup games. Many of you may have watched and not realized what was going on in the offing. Um, a, a week before I met one of these girls, her name was Sindiswa. Um, she had been kicked out of uh, the brothel because she could no longer stand up. Uh, she was desperately ill. A good Samaritan took her to a hospital uh, the hospital very quickly checked her into a hospice. She was 16 years old, and uh, it was a state-run hospice, and it was very cold um, uh, that night. And I should say, first of all, as a caveat, these pictures were taken by my marvelous photographer, Melanie Hammond, um, who traveled with me throughout South Africa, and we had, I gave, relayed to her a principle um, that victims' faces, particularly child victims' faces, not be shown. Um, and this was not only my standard, but it was Time Magazine's standard. Um, the idea was, I want these victims to be able to, to live with dignity and, and frankly, um, uh, I want them to be able to recover and lead normal lives. In the case of this young woman, Sindiswa, um, we asked her to turn her face and she said that she wanted her photograph to be taken. She'd had very few photographs of her 
taken in her life, and she never actually told her story to anyone. And so in this moment, um, as I say, we're in a, we're in a, a hospice, um, a state-run hospice, and um, it was freezing cold. There was no central heating. Um, but Sindiso, as you may be able to see with this next photograph, um, had beads of sweat um, that would um, uh, pill up as, as we were talking. And I had a, a paper napkin, and I wipe her, her forehead because she didn't have the energy to do it. And as soon as I would do that, they would reemerge. Um, she had full-blown AIDS. Uh, she had never been allowed to refuse a customer regardless of whether they would use protection or not. Um, and she was beaten up by her pimp um, the times that she tried. Uh, she had tuberculosis at this point, um, and her belly was slightly distended. And the next morning, it turned out um, she, uh, the nurses discovered that she was three months pregnant. Um, and at the end of the conversation, um, I asked her, is there one thing that you would want me to relay to three to four million readers of Time magazine? And I realized it was kind of a ridiculous question when I asked it, um, because she just had no context for, for that, to respond to that question. And she said, I don't know what to, what to tell those readers, but I do know what to tell you, and that's thank you for listening to my story, because nobody ever has. And at the end of the conversation, um, as she faded out, the person who had brought me to her, a man by the name of Andre Lombard, um, said to me, where is the trafficker? Um, and the question from Lombard, who was a street pastor and who had been, uh, he was a very straight shooting, terse, uh, former special forces operative who'd been in the special forces for 10 years. Um, uh, the question from him was less a question. It wasn't interrogative, it was declarative. And it was clear to me at that point that he meant to go out and find the trafficker. Um, a bit more on Lombard, um, who's, uh, you can't, boy, it's, you can't really see here, but um, we're standing in the darkness. He's, um, that's a better picture of him. Um, Lombard uh, is sort of atypical. Um, and I don't, I should say at the outset, I don't necessarily endorse his tactics. But as a journalist, I'm compelled by people who, one way or another, take the initiative to make a difference on these crimes. And Lombard uh, would allow his street pastors, and he was part of this uh, the Christian Revival Church in South Africa, he would allow his street pastors to carry weapons. And the reason for that was that the... Uh, the traffickers that he was going up against, and they were particularly organized uh, in, the, in the Nigerian community, they were, um, the, the Nigerian syndicates were those that he'd, he'd confronted more than any other, um, were very violent. 
And one of his street pastors who had been working to, to get these girls off the streets and to safety um, had been uh, uh, approached from behind um, by a trafficker with a sharpened bicycle spoke who then ran that spoke through the, the uh, trafficker's lung, uh, sorry, through the uh, pastor's lung. And as, as Lombard put it, he, di he died choking like a dog on the streets. Um, so he's very serious about the, the um, uh, uh, and realistic about the, the dangers, but he's also extremely motivated. He watched his father, who was a brutal drunk, beat his mother uh, growing up, and, he, and, and for his entire life he's had a fire in his belly um, for justice for these women who are abused by men. We, we went and I wanted to get a shot of um, the Maitland Hotel. The Maitland Hotel had been a, um, was a hotel in central Bloemfontein that had been completely taken over by the Nigerians. And they had turned the, the, the third floor um, into uh, a, um, into uh, basically a makeshift hostel for these girls where they would sleep sometimes five to a mass, five to a mattress. The fourth floor they turned into an illegal abortion clinic. When the girls got pregnant, that's where they would go and a traditional healer, a sangoma, would, would um, end the pregnancy. And the floor above that was um, what they called the breaking grounds. Uh, and the breaking grounds were where new girls were taken in. Um, they were beaten up if they resisted. Oftentimes they were gang raped. And if they continued to resist, uh, in two cases that I found out about, um, uh, including one case of somebody who actually survived, and I interviewed her, and another case um, the person didn't survive, they were defenestrated. These girls would be thrown out of the windows, um, out of the fifth floor window. Um, and so I wanted to get a shot of the Maitland. It had officially been shut down um, by, by police. Um, I should say the, the Nigerian syndicates started out um, uh, in principally dealing crack. Um, and there are very vigorously enforced laws against drug trafficking in South Africa. There is no comprehensive standalone law against human trafficking in South Africa. And so in order to protect their money, they moved into a lower risk enterprise, which was selling these girls on the street. Um, and so uh, they had protected their money quite well and, and they had basically forced the reopening of this hotel. So we were there around midnight. And at the corner of the hotel, my um, photographer shot this young girl who stood out because she was alone, she looked very cold. It was zero degrees that night um, and uh, she was wearing flip-flops as you might be able to see in this photograph. And, um, and I went over and uh, I, I tried to have a couple of words with her. And she didn't speak very much English but she could respond to my questions. And I asked her, um, first of all, where she was from, and she said, Eastern Cape. And I said, how old are you? And she said, 15. And then I asked her, do you need help? And she said, yes, desperately. She had tried to run away three times 
from her trafficker. Uh, and I immediately called over one of the street pastors who spoke Tosa, who, which was her native language. And within five minutes, um, it came out that this was the best friend of Sindiswa, of the girl who I showed in earlier pictures, who had been um, dying in front of my eyes. And uh, as a journalist, you sort of, um, there's sort of this unspoken rule that you're supposed to observe and not engage. Uh, in this instance and in one other instance where victims came to me very directly and said, I'm desperate, I need your help. Um, the second rule of journalism is do no harm. Staying neutral in situations like this is not doing no harm. It's facilitating an unfolding monstrosity. And so I said to this young girl, how do we, how do we get you out of here? And she said, well, I need my, my stuff. And I said, forget that. Let's just get you out of the situation. And she said, you don't understand. Jude, the trafficker, has placed a spell on, on my stuff. And he has tracked me twice before. And I won't be able to go anywhere without him finding me unless I get that stuff back. And so to make a long story short, we wound up, this is Andre Lombard, um, me, one of his street pastors, uh, and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, by the way, isn't her real name. Um, I've changed her name, uh, as, as I always do with victims that, that are still alive. Um, and uh, we went to the, um, the crack den, which was a... Uh, basically a, a, a broken down building that had been an uh, old warehouse that had been subdivided by the traffickers. And we found the trafficker. Um, I went in, had a conversation with him in the corner wherein he offered to sell me two girls for $45 each outright. Um, and he said he was very much looking forward to the World Cup. In, in his words, quote, um, uh, uh, those of us, and he took me as a trafficker because I didn't tell him otherwise at that point, um, those of us who know what we're doing are going to make a lot of money during the World Cup. Um, we wound up allowing Elizabeth to get her stuff out, and her stuff was a stack of clothes about that high, less than a foot high. That was her stuff, and a Bible. And you consider the mentality of somebody who will convince that they uh, will convince a victim that they have placed a curse on their Bible, and that's the kind of people that we're dealing with when we're talking about traffickers. Um, we wound up getting her out. Uh, there was a, a violent episode that I wrote about in the Time Time Mag uh, Time Magazine story. Um, there was a confrontation, thankfully not involving Elizabeth but involving another trafficker and the trafficker's enforcer. Um, and, um, but we got Elizabeth safely out, and I had an update on her yesterday, and she's, she's doing fine. And it's a stretch to call her lucky. But when you compare her, her fate to Sindiswa, Sindiswa very sadly passed away a week after I interviewed her. 
And when you compare Elizabeth's fate to Sindiswa's, Elizabeth is HIV negative. She's in school. I found a, a, a suburban couple in Chicago uh, who were generous enough to support her school. Um, and she is back with her um, her mother. Elizabeth is back with her mother, who is disabled, but she's they're they're struggling, but they're they're doing okay. Um, it's a stretch to call her lucky, perhaps, but but she's alive. Um, and um, and I'm reminded that again, for these slaves, delay is denial. And if we don't act, slaves will die in bondage and we will not have fulfilled our collective pledges, pledges that have been, that have been baptized in blood in this country through the Civil, civil War, uh, pledges that we have made in our international institutions, Article 4 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that slavery and the slave trade shall be the It'll be the duty of, of nations to, to abolish these, to wipe these from the earth. And for me, very personally, we will be countenancing the deaths and the destructions of people like Sindiswa. So there are many ways to get involved, and, and I want to now open it up to, to questions and answer. Um, but... Um, before I do that, I just want to rattle off a couple of ideas. Um, uh, first of all, there are uh, two great organizations, one of which I've already mentioned, Free the Slaves. The other is Anti-Slavery International. These are um, two very well-developed, very um, holistic organizations that not only free slaves, but work to keep them free and work to prevent slavery from recurring in the communities in which they've done their work. Uh, both of those organizations I'm, I list on my website, which is a crimesomonstrous.com. Um, and um, by the way, um, this was the final shot. This was Elizabeth's home. Um, just to give you a sense of what some of these conditions are and what some of the conditions that Free the Slaves and Anti-Slavery International work to ameliorate um, to, to make sure that parents don't have to make that devil's choice between watching their children slowly starve, die of a preventable disease, or giving their children away to a trafficker and an uncertain fate. Um, so supporting those organizations and pushing for our government to do its job and to fulfill its obligations to all of us to lead the fight against this. The, um, uh, I was greatly encouraged when President Obama appointed uh, a man named Lou DeBaca to head the Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons within the State Department. He is um, Ambassador DeBaca is somebody who was a, a special prosecutor uh, dealing with trafficking cases and was one of the most decorated federal prosecutors in the country. He put away more than 100 traffickers over the course of his 15-plus years of service as a prosecutor. And uh, those cases resulted also in the rescue and rehabilitation of over 600 victims. That was right here in the United States. 
he's a great person to have in that, in that job. The, the real problem is that the fight is not funded. We spend as much money in a single day. In fact, we spend more money in a single day to fight the war on drugs as we do in an entire year to fight the war on slavery. And, you know, I'm not Rand Paul here. <laughs> I'm not calling for the legalization of drugs. Um, and I'm not trying to diminish the relative horrors of smoking marijuana. But I am saying, which is the more monstrous crime? Is it a 15-year-old selling pot on the street corner, or is it a 15-year-old like Sindiswa being sold for rape and destruction on a street corner? And unless we press our public officials to evaluate our priorities, to reevaluate our priorities, and our funding priorities in particular, our, our government will not be funding this fight. Fundamentally, it's not who in Washington says that they're against slavery, and, and your senator, uh, uh, ben, uh, ben Nelson, has, has said some, some very eloquent um, things about, about human trafficking. He said, uh, most recently, he said that um, slavery, or human trafficking, rather, is the scourge of the 21st century, um, uh, the scourge of the earth, to be precise. Um, that's great. I'm glad to hear that Senator Nelson is behind the fight, at least rhetorically. Um, it's more than Senator Johans has said about human trafficking. Um, at the same time, at the same time, it's not who says it's a bad thing. It's who puts their money where, where their mouth is. It's who comes up with the appropriations and it's, it's who sponsors legislation. And right now, there's no leadership in the Senate on this issue. Senator Brownback, who was, who was leaving, was a, a spark plug on this issue and, and pushed for the initial Trafficking Victims Protection Act and subsequent reauthorizations. And his loss leaves a vacuum. I hope that all of us, when we have a chance to, to speak to our senators, and I hope that all of you, when you have a chance to speak to Senators Nelson and, and, and Johans, will will encourage them on this issue. Um, fundamentally, there are many ways to get involved, and, and right now I'm going to stop talking and, and open up the conversation. Um, but before I, did, before I do that, I just want to leave you with a thought, and this was the thought that was initially expressed by somebody much more eloquent than me, uh, a philosopher with whom I, I, um, who I have always greatly admired, Henry David Thoreau, who was torn between sentiments of pacifism and abolitionism in, in the days leading up to the American Civil War. And two days before the first shots were fired, he spoke, uh, he wrote actually to a friend of his who had been reading reports of slavery and the rumbling disunion in the New York Herald. And what he wrote to this friend was, if you know of it, you are particeps criminis. You're a partner in the crime. What business have you, if you are an angel of light, to be pondering over the deeds of darkness? And he meant that as an admonition, as a warning. I took it when I read it, and I hope all of you take it as you hear it, as an exhortation, 
as a call to arms, as a call to, to get involved. And hopefully now during the, the question and answer period, we can, we can talk about some ways to do that. So thank you very much for your time and attention. questions, please get a card from one of the ushers and, and write your question and give it uh, back to the ushers so that we can then uh, assemble those cards and, and bring them to the fore and, and begin to ask those. Uh, let me begin with some questions that come from the uh, Thompson Scholars, which is the learning community of students here at the university. Uh, the first question, what experience brought you into this issue of human trafficking? Um, I, I have to say, I don't think it was one experience. I think it was a, a collective series of experiences. Um, uh, by the way, just so you know what I'm, well, I guess it's no longer up there, but um, it was a collective uh, series of experiences. Um, and it was, it was the aggregate of, of being raised in a household and in a place, Madison, Wisconsin, um, that really values social justice and values um, not only talking about social justice but hopefully doing something about it. Um, and uh, uh, the, um, the, the commitment to uh, fight slavery long predates me and my family um, and in, in my faith community among, among the Quakers. Um, and so when I heard about it and, and principally when I talked to slaves, when I talked to slaves and survivors, um, I, I got a sense of, okay, here's something that is motivating to me. It's, it's um, slightly more rewarding than, um, you know, uh, running derivatives for a bank. Um, uh, 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 and it fundamentally is something that I can, I can get behind and something that I can, uh, uh, I'm interested to do. A second question from the Thompson Scholars. Uh, how do you think globalized technology such as the internet has affected the practice of human trafficking? Um, you know, the internet is like gravity. It's a phenomenon. It's, um, it's not something, uh, it's like globalization. It's not something that um, is good or bad. There is no value attached to the internet. Um, it, it can be used to facilitate trafficking. Uh, it can also be used very much to fight trafficking. Um, and I think um, one of the most uh, salient uh, issues regarding human trafficking over the last couple of weeks has been the debate over the Craigslist adult services section. Um, and I am... Uh, largely agnostic on on the the shutdown of that, but um, I also think it's kind of a cheap solution. I think that the the better solution would have been to use that rigorously uh, for law enforcement to use that section rigorously um, to investigate and to prosecute uh, trafficking cases, one way or another. Sadly, the internet is going to be used to facilitate. Uh, sex with children. It has been and it will be. 
the, the question is whether law enforcement is up to the challenge and whether they will use the internet as well to fight the traffic of, of, uh, of children for sexual, for sexual exploitation. Uh, a third question, uh, how can we hold UN member states to higher standards as they are the ones trafficking in some cases? Well, we're, we're all UN member states, I guess. Um, uh, so um, how do we hold ourselves to higher standards is, is, the, is the key question. Um, you know, the, the, the role of, of the UN, and I'm taking that question to mean more what is the role of, of the UN in all of this. Um, the role of the UN is, quite, is made quite explicit in the Charter and in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There is, um, uh, the UN should be one of the main organizing bodies towards ending slavery in the slave trade. And you look at what, for example, the WHO has been able to do with regards to polio, um, with regards to the fact that um, over, the, uh, um, over the, the, the course of the last uh, uh, half century, we have largely eradicated polio. Um, and, and that was part of the initial mandate of the, the World Health Organization. Well, today, part of the initial mandate of the, um, of the United Nations was to eradicate slavery in the slave trade, and there are more slaves than at any point in human history. That's a failure, and it needs to be recognized as such. I think that the, the um, conscious or unconscious omission from the Millennium Development Goals of eradicating modern-day slavery, which I fundamentally believe is something that we can do in a generation, given the right resources, given the right effort, and given the right coordination, the, the, the omission of abolition, comprehensive abolition from those Millennium Development Goals, I think, is an indictment on the part of the, the, uh, of, of the planners. Uh, a fourth question, which uh, is somewhat of a flip side of, of the third one. Uh, <clears throat> do we even have the right to intervene on another state's sovereignty involving the issues of human rights? Uh, yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, and on this issue, now, um, with regards to certain forms of slavery like debt bondage, it's a very thorny issue, and we're not going to invade India um, over the fact that there are more slaves in that country than the rest of the world combined. Um, but in a, in a case like uh, uh, that of Liberia's Charles Taylor, who uh, egregiously used slavery, used forced child soldiers, uh, funded uh, a, a war which resulted in the slavery, the bondage, the mutilation of thousands of, of citizens. Um, there is a case where he is in the place where he should be, which is in the dock in, in The Hague. Um, and I very much hope that President Bashir of Sudan will soon follow him. <laughs> What are some issues in Nebraska or instances of slavery in Nebraska? Um, well, there was the um, instance that I spoke about. And, um, you know, we happen to have one of the 
um, the, the, the few experts that I've encountered uh, here uh, up on stage at the moment. So maybe, maybe you could, uh, Marcy, this is Marcy, Marcy Metzger. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about um, her work, uh, and um, uh, which is not limited, of course, to to human tra to uh, human trafficking, but primarily violence against women. You should go to uh, voicesofhopelincoln.org. Um, uh, but maybe you can talk about some of the cases that you've encountered. Um, I think we, we have a lot of questions for you, and they can hear um, but, but about please. Voices of Hope and some of what's happening here. Being um, in a city that's really uh, a refugee, a primary refugee city, we're seeing instances of trafficking of individuals that are coming here or that have been here as refugees and talking about both the, the impact that they've had in, the, in their countries of origin, but also because they're more vulnerable in this country, some of the other exploitation that happens with them um, that, that, that goes as far as, as, as selling or forcing them into um, labor that they have not agreed to and cannot get out of. We talked today about the amount of uh, violence that's happening with individuals tied into domestic violence and how violence against women and children um, are, is increasing. We've also talked about how we're starting to get more calls from individuals um, that are, are young, young people, adolescents, that are being trafficked down the I-80 corridor. Some of those that have been involved in criminal activities like selling weapons and drugs, um, definitely in relationship to the sex trade, um, and being taken from one state to another because they're not identified and they're, they're not protected and they can't return home. And in this country, um, mu much of what we do with adolescents who have left home and then get pulled into um, and coerced into or threatened into trafficking in, uh, situations, um, many times they've left home because of violence. And so the reconciliation doesn't uh, typically end for them in terms of vi the violence. Those are just a few, I think, that people here in Lincoln are hearing more. And I know that that's uh, where our website links to some both statewide and international um, information on trafficking. Thanks, Marcy. Uh, what effect could microcredit loans have on hereditary debt slavery? Um, uh, a great deal. And um, I am a, I'm a huge proponent of providing comprehensive, formal um, forms of, of banking uh, and, uh, and loan giving uh, that would supplant what is already taking place. Because people find a way to get capital one way or the other. And um, when they're desperate, people find a way to take advantage of people's need for capital. So um, what I have seen uh, as being some of the most effective forms of, uh, of fighting slavery oftentimes involve microcredit projects. And uh, in particular, in northern India, I, I spoke earlier about um, that village where everybody was enslaved um, thanks to a debt. Um, a, a fictional debt in, in the eyes of the law, a debt that had no legal standing, but a debt um, that was used as a coercive tool to force people into labor. Um, in a neighboring village, a Free the Slaves partner had, uh, for the, the prior six years uh, prior to my arrival there, 
had been working with the villagers, first of all, to break their fear of the traffickers. And in many cases, these were the villagers in exactly the same situation as in the village that I was visiting, where they had been enslaved in some cases for a matter of years, in some cases for a matter of generations. Um, and the, uh, the Free the Slaves partner came together and, um, and first of all won them the, the rights, uh, legally, the rights to, to quarry on that land. And then encouraged them to pool their essentially non-existent resources, um, but, but to form credit, credit unions within their community so that they themselves would be providing credit to other members of the community and they would hold each other accountable for, for repayment. Um, but uh, fundamentally, what happened is you saw for the first time in generations wealth creation. And you saw individuals who had nothing, who their only property, uh, or they, they had themselves been owned as property essentially. For the first time ever, they began to own things. And they all stayed working in the quarries, but, some, but little by little, you began to see some of the young people break off and they started little farms. Um, and uh, the, the adults upgraded their homes. And they, in, in a couple of instances, they bought uh, cattle. Uh, they bought a head of cattle. They bought a buffalo. Um, and, and then they would make more money by selling the milk and through animal husbandry. And gradually you had this upcycle of development that made that community more prosperous, more peaceful, and ultimately turned them into consumers. And this is something we have to think about on the macro level. That when we, when we invest money in, in fighting modern day slavery, we're not throwing money away on some charity. This is investment in development. And ultimately, the yield on development is enhanced products, I mean enhanced markets for, for consumers, for, um, for businesses rather, um, and it is uh, fundamentally a, um, a richer and a more, more peaceful and a, uh, a more prosperous uh, uh, world. And, and it, starts, it starts really with, with implanting that idea of freedom and then solidifying it through these systems of credit. Uh, two closely related questions. One is about the effect of uh, immigration on slavery in the United States and another on uh, the connection with uh, illegal immigration into the United States, undocumented immigration. Um, sorry, the first question was slavery in the United States? What, what's the effect of immigration on slavery? Oh, what's the effect and the of second okay. one, uh, qualified immigration to refer specifically to uh, illegal or undocumented uh, immigration. Well, I should say that not every person who is brought into this country, um, who is trafficked in this country, uh, comes here uh, as an undocumented worker. Some of them come documented. Uh, some of them come on tourist visas, overstay those visas. Um, but one thing that, one, one pattern, and I'm sure Marcy could speak to this as well, but um, one pattern that I have seen over and over again is the undocumented status of a worker, um, if they are in fact undocumented, is used as a coercive tool to keep that worker from speaking out 
Traffickers again and again echo the same refrain. If you go to the police, they're going to process you for deportation. They're going to take you to La Migra, and you're going to be deported back home. And when you get back to El Salvador or wherever we've trafficked you from, uh, we will take our due. Um, and we, we have to consider this as we, as we think about the immigration debate, which is so thorny in this country, that it is not black and white, particularly when we're talking about these individuals who may be trafficked. If our only concern for individuals that are found to be undocumented in this country, if our only concern is the fact that they're here illegally, then potentially we are complicit with the traffickers. We are, we are making, we are turning, we are turning what, are, what can be victims of a crime against humanity into mere perpetrators of a crime against the state. And, and that is, I think, uh, putting ourselves on the wrong side of history. Uh, I appreciate all the questions that we're getting, uh, many of which we will not be able to ask. Uh, let me uh, ask one final question. Uh, the stories you tell are horrendous. Are they the norm, or are there more subtle forms of slavery that are the norm? Huh. Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I tell the story of Sindiswa, and I wrote about her story, obviously, because it's egregious. And in, in the starkest possible terms, it embodies um, what will happen, I believe, if we don't act to free slaves. Um, but there are many other stories. There is, there is a whole range. Um, and as was true um, in, uh, I, one of my last assignments was in Bolivia and Brazil. I was looking at Bolivian, indigenous Bolivians that were trafficked into the garment district in Sao Paulo. This was just a couple of months ago. And they were producing clothes for sale in Western markets, including in, in American retailers, in one particular American retailer. And, um, and uh, one young man who had been trafficked and held for about four months um, eventually said, uh, enough of this, and managed to break free. He had been locked in 24-7 into a windowless sweatshop with his, uh, as he called her, his, his woman, who was uh, essentially his fiance. And when he believed that she was pregnant, in fact, she wasn't pregnant, she just had the early onset of tuberculosis, um, uh, he felt like he needed to break free. And, um, and he grabbed the key from the trafficker um, when the trafficker was in the bathroom. Um, Grab the grab the key from the from the door outside of the bathroom, unlocked the door to the sweatshop and ran, and eventually um, he became free along with uh, um, with the uh, six others that were held in that particular slave shop. Um, so there are instances where slaves get out where they free themselves on their own, um, and um, I I think that should not make us feel any less responsible for those that are held. And in particular, on this issue of slaves that are producing products for sale in American markets, we have got to ask ourselves, what is the price that I'm paying for this? Because if the price of a consumer good is 
lower because slavery is in the supply chain, then the price is too high. And a few hours ago, um, a, few, a few hours ago, I, I got a text message. Uh, I'm a notorious name dropper, so you're going to have to forgive me. But I got a text message from Julia Ormond, the, um, the actress, the very fine actress, who um, has been a spark plug on pushing for a piece of legislation in California, um, SB 657, the, um, trans, uh, the California Transparency and Supply Chains Act of 2010. Um, it was actively resisted by the uh, California Chamber of Commerce. Um, it was uh, not expected to pass. It did pass the Senate, and uh, today, a few hours ago, to his great credit, um, Governor Schwarzenegger signed the bill into law. What this bill does, um, what this bill does is require um, companies, I'm just going to very briefly read from the, the text of the bill here. Um, uh, uh, beginning January 1st, 2012, it requires all retail sellers and manufacturers doing business in the state of California to disclose their efforts to eradicate slavery and human trafficking from their direct supply chains for tangible goods offered for sale as specified. So um, that is something that is a, you can look at it as a consumer protection you can look at it as a business protection because it's, it's ensuring that businesses uh, protect their brands by evaluating whether slavery exists in their supply chains and if it exists, getting rid of it. But fundamentally, I see it as a means by which we can all work, or anyway, all Californians, and it should be all Nebraskans, there should be a similar initiative here in Nebraska, um, all of us citizens can work to finally finish the unfinished work that President Lincoln spoke of all those years ago at Gettysburg. Thank you so much for your time today. I, I greatly appreciate it.